Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on New Distant Radio. My guest today is Joseph Schuldiner of the Institute of Domestic Technology. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. The Journal of Food Protection recently published three quantitative microbial risk assessments which showed that raw milk is a low-risk food despite previous claims of it being high-risk profile. These scholarly papers were reviewed at the Center for Disease Control in Vancouver, B.C., and found unpasteurized milk to be a low risk for all the pathogens commonly associated with it, such as Campylobacter, E. coli, and Listeria. All groups fell in the low risk profile from healthy adults to the groups more likely to be at risk, including pregnant women, children, and senior citizens. Raw milk has been villainized for the past century, and BC's CDC studies should be acknowledged for breaking the myth that fresh milk is dangerous. Next, Chipotle has released a list on its website of how its ingredients are prepared and served. This includes which ingredients are genetically modified. Many of its ingredients are revealed to include GMOs, such as its chicken, beef, rice, and tortillas. While it's certainly upsetting to see how many GMOs are found in Chipotle's food, it's at least good to see that the restaurant is voluntarily labeling that it has GMOs. And with this information out in the public, hopefully people will voice their opinions and get Chipotle to remove its GMO ingredients. Also, the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service announced a recall in at least 30 states over 22,000 pounds of ground beef from the National Beef Packaging Company. While no cases of illness from the recalled meat have been yet reported, I still have to wonder how many recalls of tainted meat have to occur before we can move away completely from factory farm meat and go to fully pastured meat. For me, all beef in my house is grass-fed, and I just refer to it as beef. And finally, the Los Angeles City Council voted to approve a plastic bag ban, with only one council member voting against it. The vote was a tentative approval, and the council cast its final vote next week. If such a bill passed, it will be enacted on January 1st, 2014. LA would join several of its incorporated cities that already have plastic bag bans, and would make LA the largest city in the U.S. to enforce a plastic bag ban. It would be great if LA could become the first major city to ban this unnecessary product. And now for the main course, which today is domestic technology. So much of the food out there is heavily processed and people don't know how their food is made or what goes into it. And even if you buy products with labels, such as handcrafted, artisan, or organic, there's really only one way to know if any of that is true. You need to make it yourself. My guest today is Joseph Schuldiner, and he started the Institute of Domestic Technology, which offers the public a chance to learn how to do all of these lost arts in the kitchen, learning how to make things such as sauerkraut, bread, cheese, how to cure your own bacon, and many other classes on cooking traditional foods. Here now is my guest, Joseph. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I really admire what you do. I think it's 
so wonderful that there's an institute that offers classes on all of these great things. How did you come up with this idea in the first place of starting the Institute of Domestic Technology? Um, well, I, you know, I've been around food. I've been around farmers uh, most of my life. I actually come from uh, a sort of a creative direction of being a, a, an art director um, and art directing food photographers. So I, I've been around food, but I never really wanted to be, I never wanted to be a professional chef. Uh, I never wanted to own a restaurant, but I am, you know, obsessed with food. And I'm also sort of, uh, my entire life been curious about how things are made. I'm always sort of geeky. I wasn't the kind of kid that took apart toasters to see how they work, but I also, but I wanted to deconstruct food. So back when I was, I, know, I must've been a teenager, um, I I wanted to learn like how flour you know was made, mm-hmm. so I bought a um, a little hand you know I had my parents buy me a, a hand uh, grain grinder like how how is wheat berries turned into flour, um, so my whole life I've been sort of curious about where where the the products that we buy in a store that we call food where how that's made and where it comes from, so these classes sort of grew out of um, this this renewed interest, um, not only of how the food we consume is made, but also um, what goes into it and how it's sourced. You know, we're so um, concerned about the you know organic or locally sourced, um, but you know when something's made in a store, we really don't know that. So I'm I'm kind of fueling this curiosity of my own, along with I think a renewed curiosity from the public of um, how how ingredients. Uh, food ingredients is made. I do think there's a lot of renewed interest in the public from that, specifically with one of the courses that you do with sauerkraut, because I do see a lot of people now making their own sauerkraut and doing their own ferments because they're learning that a lot of these foods that we buy in stores aren't fermented like they were in traditional times. Yeah, uh, and it's you know there's also probiotic is a new buzzword right now, and right, you know, everyone's trying to get yogurt and all that. And again, I'm not a doctor or nutritionist or anything, but I know that what I've been reading is a lot of these super expensive probiotic supplements are actually not living foods. You know, you don't there's no guarantee you know what's going on. So as people are turning to homemaking, homemade yogurt and sauerkraut for that probiotic effect. Again, they're controlling, they're making it themselves. They know it's alive. They're keeping it alive. And also how like amazingly alchemic it is that you can literally take cabbage and salt and you're not even necessarily adding water and it turns into this incredible living organism that happens to be tasty. So, And what I've done in the, in the Institute is, yeah, we talk a little bit about the health properties, but really it's about taste and it's about sort of taking back control of what we put in our bodies and also as consumers, you know, we don't have to be driven by frappuccinos and what people are telling us to eat, but that we can actually decide that ourselves. So sauerkraut, I think, is this incredible thing people are rediscovering because it is so amazingly simple to make and then it's producing your own live food, which I think people get excited about. That is a good point to bring up about the buzzword of probiotic and the difference between the live foods that have probiotics and these probiotic supplements, which if people have really low gut flora, I think certainly taking the probiotic supplements are better than nothing, but you can't compare it to live foods like kombucha and sauerkraut, pickles, bikavas. That is the best source of probiotics. Absolutely. And and like I said, I think it's also some kind of innate, um, I wouldn't say spirituality, but some kind of innate something that happens when 
you create it yourself. You know, when you're really, you're growing these, these you know, you're encouraging your own bacteria um, to do that. And also, you know, I kind of, you know, we do a lot of, obviously in the class, we talk about, um, you know, uh, when you're out in the world, how to look at these things. And, you know, people are selling um, yogurt that's been pasteurized afterwards. You know, so they make, they make the yogurt, then they pasteurize it for shelf life, and they've killed you know, all the bacteria. And the same thing with sauerkraut. They've made sauerkraut and then they canned it, you know, a high pressure canned it and put it up so it lasts on the shelf and there's, there's nothing left in it. So, and people don't know that. Why would they? And they think, oh, sauerkraut is sauerkraut, right? Or yogurt is yogurt. So, you know, when you made it yourself and you understand that, you know, bacteria needs to live, you know, in a certain environment, um, it educates you when you go shopping in the market. And also a lot of people misunderstand the idea of pasteurization. They think Louis Pasteur, he created this great process, but it's really not because like you said, it kills healthy bacteria and really the only people that it benefits is big ag and supermarkets because they have longer shelf life. Correct, correct. And we teach, um, one of our signature classes at the Institute, uh, which we've taught since the beginning, is our, our milk crafting class, which is really uh, just a, a different name for cheese making, but we include a lot of things that aren't um, technically um, cheese, like um, uh, kefir and creme fraiche and you know butter and stuff. And of course, we're on a you know we're on a little home um, goat farm, <laughs> so you know we're we're literally like you know um, uh, Steve and Gloria who who run the estate. They you know they're raising goats, they're milking their goats, and we we kind of blow people's minds when we talk about what happens with big ag and milk and the milk you're buying in the store. We do this wonderful um, exercise we go through because, you know, we try not to give a lot of dogma, um, but we do a milk tasting and we go through different types of milk and, um, and kind of describe, here's what happens, you know, to get to you in the market. Here's what happens with this, this milk. Here's what happens with that milk. Um, and here's what happens with pasteurization and homogenization and, you know, why would anyone know about those? We know them the names because we see it on the milk cartons, but uh, why would any of us know exactly what that means? We don't. So um, we we teach people kind of what that's about too, um, and 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 you know, on the back end, what that means when you drink it. So I think it's interesting. Oh, that's great that you do it because. Raw milk is certainly a misunderstood thing and something that's so feared because of stuff you hear in the media and what the FDA says. But I mean, mm -hmm. the traditional food and pasteurization is something that we haven't had with milk for most of the time that we've been around. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, we're, first of all, we're incredibly lucky living in California where raw milk is legal. Right, because I mean, right. there's so many states where 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 it's not legal. Oh yeah. And, and 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 I'm you know I am again I said you know, we try not to be you know have a lot of dogma when we teach things because I think that that things should be a choice and I think what's great about raw milk, um, along with a lot of other things, is that that you should you should be able you know with with you know important information supplied to you but to, to make your own choice and. Um, that we should we should have access to that. We should be able to make our choices about what we do uh, want and what we don't want. So you know we we talk we we you know, we we we, we um, uh, educate people about you know what is you know what what raw milk is and what what what's associated with that. But also they need to know um, 
what's associated with, with the commercial milk, which is all pooled from, you know, maybe 300 different dairies. Now, even the organic brands are all pooled together from different dairies that all may be treating their cows differently. So um, when you become informed about those kinds of things, I think it sort of changes your world. And in your classes on milk crafting, do people make the cheese and the kefir and the butter from raw milk? Um, no, we, we, sometimes we did. And then we realized, you know, we've had pregnant women in the class. We've had different people. Um, we've even had sort of undercover reporters in class. Wow, and, yeah. um, we, you know, we realized it's like, look, we, we can, we'll talk about it. Um, we, uh, we sort of stopped serving raw milk just because we felt like, um, you know, it, it got complicated with people and we, and we don't feel like we need to force our own personal opinions on, on, you know, on students, but we do want to inform them about that. So we do have, um, uh, you know, we have raw milk that we, that we, there, if people want to taste, um, but, uh, we kind of, you know, uh, we're kind of still clear of that right now. Right. Let's certainly understand based on what people says. And certainly <laughs> yeah. it's a thing probably to get more people to at least get them to attend the class and learn about the benefits of raw milk. You don't want to kind of turn them right away if they do have any fears of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, there's lots of talk about, about that. Um, but there's also, this, there's this really, I mean, because I think people are demanding to know about all this, there's this sort of new breed, which we're seeing in, in California, at least I don't know about the rest of the country is in non-homogenized milk, like Strauss Dairy is, is now supplying um, like cream top milk, which means it's non, non, um, um, uh, uh, thank you. I was going to say hydrogenated, not non-homogenized. Um, and you know, that, uh, you know, and milk, what, what I learned, I mean, I, I hire a lot of teachers at the Institute so I can learn from them because they're things, they're things I'm interested in. So I, I never made cheese before. Um, and I, I want to do these series, um, just so I could learn about that, but it's turned out to be very popular. So from Steve and Gloria, what I've learned is you know, that milk is a very, very delicate substance. And the more, the, the more of uh, how you stir it, how you, you know, how slowly you heat it, um, uh, all has incredible properties on the milk. And so pasteurization is this very aggressive, um, method of dealing with milk. And um, homogenization is even worse. I think it's, it, it's, it's forcing the fat molecules through this small little orifice and it's breaking it up and breaking the fat. And, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's very aggressive. So when these new melts are maybe not homogenized, they taste amazing. And when you make, and what's so incredible is this is what really opens students' eyes is when you make cheese, you know, you have to get the, the bacteria to curdle it, you know, to, to actually have it form cheese. And the, the milk that is treated the gentlest, you know, from, from raw milk up, you know, raw milk is obviously the gentlest, um, the cheese curds immediately. It's like it's, it's responding. And the more, the more like the ultra-pasteurized milk won't even make cheese, you know, because it's been damaged and it's been heated and, and pumped and stirred so aggressively, it won't, you can't even make cheese out of it. So, um, you know, when, people, when students start seeing that and they all of a sudden start putting two and two together, um, it's very eye-opening. Steve, who when he teaches a class, he, talks, he has this, this, this metaphor. He says, a lot of us who shop in farmer's markets, you know, we'll know that variety, special variety of plum, and we may even know the, the farmer. You know, it's like, you know, this, this farmer, uh, you know, uh, who grew it and, and where the farm is, right? We'll know all those things in the farmer's market. 
but can you talk about milk at all? Do you know the farmer? Do you, you know, do you know anything about that? No. Um, which is kind of amazing, right? When you think about right. it. So that, that's what we're trying to do in the, and there is a lot to know. There's a lot to know about milk. Um, and of course, I, you know, we think the dairy industry, you know, purposely doesn't want you to know. About oh, they that. certainly don't. But um, that's why they have to pasteurize it because there's a lot of stuff that goes into it that they don't want you to know. The raw dairy companies like Organic Pastures, they have nothing to hide, and they do tours. They have the cleanest dairies possible. None of these pasteurized dairies have the cleanliness that you'll see in something like Organic Pastures or Clarivale. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the large, the, the large, you know, industrial um, uh, milk industry, like I said, you know, that's at least, you know, 300 different dairies um, all pooling, in, you know, and it gets pumped, oh, you, know, you know, it gets milked from the cow and then pumped into a tank, and then that tank gets pumped into a tanker that then goes to, you know, whatever. So there might be 300 different dairies, and each one, you know, farmer A might be super conscientious. It's like, you know, I'm really, I love my cows. I'm really going to take good care of them. I'm going to make sure everything is really clean. You know, but farmer B might be behind on his rent, you know, or might not be so conscientious. And it's not going to be. And they all get, so it doesn't mess so When his gets pumped into farmer A's, you know, milk and mixed together, if there's anything in there, so much for that. It's all the same now. Um, and that's what's so uh, what we're lacking with with dairies like Clarivale and and uh, organic Marks you know um, organic pastures is it's one dairy you know it's the, he it, it, when you're drinking the milk it's all that dairyman's um, you know consciousness in a bottle it's not 300 of them you know of, of varying degrees um, and that's incre- I think that's incredible that we're still able to have milk from you know from one farmer it's amazing and it's pretty much doing the same thing as buying like all of your produce from one farmer versus buying it from these big ag companies that take from several different farms and combine it together and you talked a little about the process of pasteurization which is a high heat now something i've wondered is that is there a difference between pasteurizing milk and simply cooking it over the stove at a high temperature um, technically not. I mean, obviously, you know, with the health department, the dairy, the dairy, you know, uh, laws is, you know, it has to be, and, and I, um, I don't have the number top of my head, but, you know, pasteurization is bringing the milk up to a certain temperature where any harmful bacteria would be killed and keeping it there for a specific set of time. And I forget what those measurements are, but, you know, so that by law, that's what it has to be where literally all, you know, all bacteria is, you know, is killed. Um, so, you know, you, I guess you could do that on a stove if you had an accurate thermometer and you timed it. Um, you know, you could pasteurize it technically yourself. Um, but, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, that's all about the, the, the legality and the health rules. Right. Well, I mean, that just makes me wonder as far as the issue of when you heat butter or you heat cheese and if it's from like raw milk cheese or raw milk butter, are you essentially pasteurizing it and does it lose all the nutritional benefits when you do that? Um, you know, it's not, well, this, you know, even with high pasteurized milk, there's still nutritional benefits. There's still, you know, um, uh, minerals and calcium and all that, maybe, maybe not as accessible uh, to assimilate in your body. Um, but I, you know, I can't, again, I can't make claims about that, but um the, you know, they're, they're and, I, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure on this, but, you know, when you, when you go to a cheese store and you, there's certain, you know, raw, you know, everyone has those famous stories. You go to France, and there's like this, these amazing raw cheeses and everyone's trying to smuggle it, you know, through customs because it is illegal to bring back. It has, but we can have here um, raw, 
cheated at the age, I think, what is it? 60 days. Sorry, 60 days. Um, So there's obviously something that happens in 60 days, and if there is anything potentially harmful, um, is is killed um, from that aging process. There's something, obviously, about that, because that is allowed. So, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, again, I'm not a... I don't claim to be a scientist, but I know that as far as the laws go, you know, um, they are, you know, they are trying to be, they're, they're, they, they say they're trying to be as safe as possible. So I, I have to go, um, you know, with, with that. Right. But the thing I wonder is when you use a raw milk butter to cook with, if it has any value still since it was from raw milk, since you're heating it. And Mark McAfee has said, although generally butter is better when it's not heated, it is still better to use a raw milk butter with cooking than with using a pasteurized butter. Like you said, for it to be truly pasteurized, it has to be over a certain period of time where you have it at the high heat. So if you're doing it for a short right, time, you have to hold it. it could probably right. still retain some of the benefits with it. I think it does. Like I, I make yogurt every week with his um, with the organic pastures um, whole milk, and I um, I do heat. You know, when you make yogurt, you heat it up to 180 degrees. You don't hold it there. That's not pasteurizing it. Um, it's it's doing something with the proteins so that when when you do add the yogurt culture, it um, you can make a nice thick yogurt. You know, so and I like that sort of Greek yogurt style. So I I do heat. I heat his raw milk up to 180 degrees um, and then, you know, cool it down to the sort of 115 to 118 range that those uh, the little healthy bacteria love. Um, and, of course, with his milk, um, it comes out like almost a thick kind of drained yogurt you buy, that kind of Greek stuff you have to drain out of. Um, it just comes out that way because his milk is – his raw milk is so amazing. And I've been, and I've been practicing – Heating it under 180, like how low can I go? Because I kind of thought about that too. Can how low can I go in the temperature um, to still get that thick um, yogurt? So I'm I'm sort of down to about 170 now. I only have to bring it up to 170, and I still get that great thick yogurt culture going. So, um, but I know that it's not you know it's not as high as what you need to to technically you know pasteurize it. I think there's still a lot of um, healthy. Um, bacteria left in in there, um, and um, you know I, I don't think you've killed as much as you would commercially pasteurized. Right, and that's a good point to bring up when you do cook a type of milk that's raw is that you should just look at heating it where it doesn't go so high that you kill everything. You can just kind of control it and maybe cook it at a medium temperature. Yeah, yeah, and and as I've learned from cheese making, um, I'm now sort of zen about even how I stir it. You know, does not. To not act, you know, not not whip it or stir it, really, but actually, you know, like um, like you're caressing something. We we're very we we teach this stirring method of, of almost from the sort of bring from the bottom to the top of pot of the pot because milk is very fragile. We don't think about that. Um, the more every time you pump it from somewhere to somewhere else, or or actually pouring from the bottle into the pot. Um, it's potentially damaging. It really, it's so interesting to learn. And you'll see when you make cheese, you'll see the gentle, the gentler you are pouring and stirring it, um, the better the cheese comes out. So, you know, whether it's about health or not, you can just see the physical property of that ingredient, the, the gentler you are with it, um, what it does. It's, 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 it's quite, it's quite uh, revealing. So there's certainly a fine practice that you have to get down, which... Actually, leads me into another question that I had for you. 
since you come from a background in fine art and graphic design, do you view making food as an art? Absolutely. I mean, I know this is cliche, but like, you know, how um, chefs became the new, you know, rock stars, the new celebrities. Right. And, you know, and, and I, I keep saying, uh, and I know so many photographers and, and, and fine artists and graphic designers that have all turned into food, food artists. They've all doing something with food. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've been saying that, that, that food is the new fine art. It really, it really is. It, it's, it's something that is um, artistic. It's creative. Um, it's, it's, it's nourishing. And, you know, I still, of course, you know, appreciate art and fine art and, and will always be an artist, but um, I don't know, there's something more immediate and more nourishing about uh, being creative with food. And I feel just as creative when I'm um, making something or cooking something. Um, it is a craft. And, you know, art is a craft. And um, I, th- I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's just the same in my mind. Certainly there is an art to food. And I think a lot of what gave rise to that was Anthony Bourdain with his books like No Reservations and Kitchen Confidential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's even moving further away from like how food is prepared to kind of like what, what's, how food relates to cultures, which I mean, it's super fascinating that we've, you know, we're, we're such culture vultures about um, you know, all the, all these, the more, like who, who's got the most obscure, um, you know, regional, regional cuisine that they're cooking with that, right? That's, right. that's every chef wants to come up with a new, <laughs> you know, a new, uh, a new cuisine. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I love what's happened to food and that, and that kind of, you know, kind of brings us full circle to, I think maybe one of your original questions was, you know, the Institute, you know, kind of why, why it's time is now is that, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of culinary schools. You, know, you can go to plenty of cooking, excellent cooking schools, you know, just even in Los Angeles, um, plenty of great cooking classes, but uh, very few people, you know, um, have really tackled, um, how to make ingredients. And I think that, um, you know, that, that is a craft. It, it is an art. Um, and, um, and we're getting, you know, in our classes, we get, um, we have, you know, just, you know, people at home want to do it as a, as a hobby, people who are, who are thinking about going into sort of small manufacturing of, of, you know, of foods and, um, uh, restaurant groups are sending their chefs to class to teach them, you know, how to pickle, how to make cheese, because they don't even know themselves. Um, so um, it's, I think it's striking a chord that people, um, you know, I think that, that food is on people's radar. I mean, look at look at all the food bloggers. It's how many, you know, when you go out to, to, a, to, to dinner, there's always someone taking a picture of their food, right? Right. That, that, didn't, hap- that didn't happen 10 years ago, right? Um, so it is an art. People are, are viewing it as an art, and, and I, I, you know, I think that's exciting. I think so too. And also 10 years ago, who would have thought that there would be all these celebrity chefs that are as famous as like rock stars or athletes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael Paul, when you read Michael Pauling, I always think it's fascinating when you analyze like how much, you know, how much time the average American spends cooking. It was like, I think it was like 20 minutes. Right. Right. But they'll spend up to an hour watching cooking shows. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I'm sort of guilty of that too. Um, so yeah, I think I think that um, uh, I think the cooking shows um, and all that sort of changed uh, changed the paradigm, you know, of 
of, of how we look at food in the world, you know. I think so. I mean, certainly No Reservations has been a very successful show. Another one is Top Chef. Right. Yeah. Food. Food, food is competition. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, yeah. Which is you know so so crazy. Um, I actually um, I won't tell you which one, but I actually auditioned to be on one of those, and um, uh, which I'm so glad I didn't get on because I you know I think like so many parts of life is stressful, and for me, cooking has always been um, something meditative and relaxed. And I thought, you know, I don't need to watch competitive cooking shows um, to be stressed out. I want to be relaxed. So, but I but I know how you know I know how much people love it and how successful they are. So. For me, for me, it's very different. <laughs> People tell me I should be on some of those shows, but the thing about those shows is you don't have to cook everything really quickly in a certain time period, and that's not how I work. I take my time to cook it. I don't worry about getting it done fast, right. but getting it done best. Right, right, right. But, I, but it, you know, sociologically, it's, it is sort of fascinating that food can be, you know, reality TV and, and, and competitive, um, that it has earned that status, you know, that is important enough to have, you know, amazing primetime shows about it and have, have, um, have them be, uh, you know, competitions. I think it, it, it's, it's a sign of what kind of status food and cooking has reached. So in that, in that sense, I think it's pretty amazing. Oh, I think it's fascinating that food can be essentially another area of entertainment like movies or <laughs> right. sports. Right, right, right. And, you know, and I think, you know, food and cooking is sort of mesmerizing, like, you know, when, when, you, uh, when you're around a campfire, right? That's whatever that happens that you, you just, you lock into that, that primalness of, you know, being around flame. I think that cooking, you know, why do people gravitate, you know, when you have a, a, a dinner party, why does everyone hang out in the kitchen? Right. right. It's it, it it has that that magnetism to it, and I, and I and I'm I'm fascinated by all that stuff, and that's why um, I think at the institute, you know, having people um, tapping into people's fascination about how something is made. You know, we we teach a um, I, I start, and what kind of started this was I I um, uh, I was kind of asked to go around to some of these food festivals and things and do demonstrations, and I I sort of chose mustard. Um, at the topic, because it was you know it's easy to travel and it's 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 iconic and everyone knows mustard. Um, but for me, it was a sort of political um, demonstration to say, you know, uh, all of us pretty much you know go we buy mustard, and when you go down in, in the in the supermarket, there's probably an entire row of different types of mustard, different brands. But you know, how many of us have ever made it? So I would sort of demonstrate. Here's an example of something we probably eat, you know, every day, or at least, you know, we, we all have it in our refrigerator door, um, but we don't know what it's what it's about. And and look how simple it is to make. And then I meet in front of them, you know, it's just, it's so so simple, you know, just soaking mustard seeds overnight and adding, you know, adding some spices. Um, and here it is, mustard. And here's how you can control it. And it's more more a political demonstration, you know, through mustard to show how you can take. Um, control of of you know uh, your life and what you put in your body and not be controlled by advertising. But people like didn't even care about. I mean, they cared about it, but they they were more just blown away. Like, oh my God, that's that's all it is. That that's that's how simple it is to make mustard, and I can make any flavor I want by just doing this. That's what kind of prompted me. Like, oh my God, people people. You know, we've forgotten, you know, how many generations our grandparents or our great-grandparents 
we have forgotten how to do all this stuff, and people and we're fascinated by by how by how that is. So really, it you know it all comes back to um, you know finding um, find, finding out that information again. And I forgot even why I started on that <laughs> topic, but um, I forgot what your question was. But but that is that is kind of how the institute was born. Was that it wasn't even political. It was more about we just we want that knowledge that we've lost. Well, we got into mustard. That certainly caught my interest because mustard is a food that, like you said, it can be made at home. Do you teach them how to make a fermented mustard? No, we we um, we haven't done that, but we do teach a fermented um, ketchup. Ah, uh, nice. We have so much whey that comes out of the cheese yeah. making that we actually we, we give to the goat uh, goats to the um, uh, chickens. The chickens love uh, drinking whey, and if if we had a pig, um, that's that's a very uh, a lot of um, cheese making facilities actually have uh, pigs um, that they raise because they, they, um, they love the whey. But, so we've been using the whey, we've been experimenting with um, whey fermented soda, fermented um, sodas right. with whey, um, fermented pickles we've been doing, but we do teach um, a fermented ketchup where we, uh, we use the whey uh, for, for fermenting that. And we also do a, um, we actually, we had, on this whole subject, we, we developed a deconstructing kitchen condiments class. So we, we take sort of commercial um, condiments and we, de- so we make a sriracha um, that is fermented with Fresno red chilies, a fermented ketchup. We make a, uh, a different kind of mustard. And then out of my, my cookbook, Pure Vegan, um, I have a, a what I call vegan shire sauce which is Worcestershire sauce minus the anchovies. Cause, uh, and, and when I say, when, and, and again, when I show people that recipe, they say, oh, what? Isn't, isn't Worcestershire uh, vegan? So people don't even know what is in bottles in, in their refrigerator. Um, so, you know, uh, Worcestershire by nature have to have anchovies in it. So I came up with a, uh, I call it vegan shires with a vegan Worcestershire. So we make that. And it's really, again, they're just, they're, physical demonstrations of how much we don't know and ways to teach people. So, you know, always when I teach that vegan shire sauce, it brings up that discussion about, you know, why, why does Worcestershire sauce have anchovies in it, you know, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then the, the sriracha, I bring a bottle of that, you know, the, the iconic rooster right. that everyone has, you know, with the gray bottle. And I, and I say, well, you know, let's pass this around and would someone read the ingredients? And, you know, there's all the other stuff, but then there's, you know, the, the thickeners and the gums and the, the sodium benzoate and the preservatives and all that. And people are like, oh my God, I had no idea. I thought it was, you know, just, you know, vinegar and, and, and chilies. So, I, so again, it's, um, you know, it's a way of educating people about about their surroundings. I like that you do a lot of classes teaching people about what different stuff can be made from whey because whey is a great traditional ingredient that can be used to make things like ketchup and it can be also used to make mustard and all kinds of things, salt, so you can use it for all types of fermentation that's used in place of what became more common, which was the pasteurized vinegar in order to prolong the shelf life. And in the book Nourishing Traditions, Sally Fallon certainly well demonstrates the use of whey to make things such as ketchup and other condiments. Right, right. And also, you know, it's it's a byproduct so that, um, you know, it's 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 uh, really interesting to us, um, you know, sort of um, nose to tail or, you know, I heard a great one, what was it called? Stem to root, <laughs> something, the, the, veg, the vegetable equivalent of, you know, using everything of your ingredients. And a lot of what we do, um, we look at that. So whey, you know, when you make cheese, 
it's literally the, 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 the amount of milk solid that you use when you make cheese is, I forgot what the percentage is, it's tiny. It's like a, I think it's a quarter of a percentage of the milk. You know, the rest is whey. And what, you know, what do you do with that? And it's got all this great living bacteria that you inoculated to make cheese, right, or yogurt or whatever you're making. Um, so it still has this amazing, um, fantastic bacteria in it. You know, what do you do with it? And um, it's got that great acidity. And um, so, yeah, it's great just on that level alone to, to find uses for it. Well, we'll talk more about classes that are being offered at the Institute of Domestic Technology, as well as some of the other stuff that Joseph Schuldiner does, such as his book and the farmer's market. But first, a word from our sponsor. Tier Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products, plus Try the recently released einkorn and einkorn flour. Einkorn is an unhybridized wheat variety referred to as the original wheat. To order your sprouted flour, visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free at 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. This is The Appropriate Omnivore on New Dissident Radio. I'm interviewing Joseph Schuldiner. He founded the wonderful Institute of Domestic Technology, which offers all kinds of classes in making great traditional foods such as sauerkraut and cheese and bread. And I want to get a little into some of the other things that you do, but there are a couple other classes that you teach that I want to talk about. One is baking curing, which I'm sure a lot of listeners to the appropriate omnivore will like, since after all, bacon is known as the gateway meat. <laughs> it is. Many vegetarians have fallen with that. Yeah, bacon, bacon is so hot right now, and I consider myself sort of vaguely vegan. I, everyone has a complicated dietary restriction, so are mine. But there is such an interest in that, and again, my fascination with how things are made, how they're steeped or infused or roasted or fermented, but also cured. So I'm also a master food preserver. I have my certificate from the University of California Cooperative Extension Program. And we learned sort of USDA guidelines of how to safely water bath can and how to dehydrate. 
and we got a little bit into meat curing, and I figured I should offer the carnivores education about curing and also about sourcing meat. So we have Rashida Purefoy, who runs the um, Fire and Gourmet company, which is a very small bath bacon company, and she teaches sort of how to source pork belly, what the curing process does, smoking meat, and it's become quite popular. It's not like a drug. People get really crazy around bacon. Oh, I mean, it's just become such a hip thing to put bacon on everything. There's desserts with bacon, right. burgers with bacon. Right, bacon chocolate. Oh, yeah, that's another one. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, and again, it's fascinating to me because um, – you know, everyone, we were talking earlier about sort of time, you know, time, uh, how, how, how uh, quick, you know, people want to make dinner really quickly and, you know, fast meals under 20 minutes and all that. So, you know, here, here we're all concerned about our time and how much time we spend in the kitchen. But, you know, at the same time, we want to, people want to learn how to cure bacon, you know, which takes a couple of days, you know, or actually all these things, not all, but a lot of them do take certain days. Not a lot of active time, but a lot of waiting time. Um, and, you you know, one could go and buy bacon anywhere. They can buy it at, you know, sustainable butcher shops that are, thank God, springing up nowadays more, more often. Um, but they want to make it themselves. And it takes, you know, it takes a couple of days. And, um, they're, you know, they're, they, they want to make a fast dinner, but they, they don't know, you know, no bones about, you know, taking three days to, you know, to cure something. Um, so uh, I think it's fascinating that, that uh that meat curing and specifically bacon is so popular. And with the bacon curing, what is your thought on adding the nitrates to it? Inevitably, someone is always asking about that. Again, I find teachers that I respect and I, I defer to them. And what we teach is, like, yes, we, we do use the pink salt nitrate, and we use it because that's what's available. I guess if you're eating fatty meat, you're adding a little nitrate to it. I, that's your choice. There is an alternative of using celery salt or a celery juice. And celery has natural nutrients in it. And so we don't do that in class, but we talk about that. Trouble is is that it's hard, depending on how old the celery is and where it's grown and what variety of celery, you can't really quantify how much natural nitrates is in the celery. So you're kind of winging it of that. And then it also does end up tasting like your bacon, I've heard, tastes like celery. So we talk about that. We just don't teach that. There's a lot of debate about that and certainly different points of view because some of the actually the celery juice or the celery salt could form nitrates, which are worse than the other ones that are added. And recently, Chris Kresser had written an article saying really not to fear nitrates added in bacon. It's something that's been traditionally added. It's not a new thing that's added to bacon. And he was saying because after the whole celery salt scare, then there was the whole artisan curing where you just added some salt. And he had said even by just adding sea salt, that can form nitrates. So there really isn't anything to be afraid of when adding nitrates of whatever type to bacon. Yeah, I, I also think it's about the quantity too. I think that, I think that know, would make a, sense. A certain level. Don't overdo it. I don't know. It's interesting because everything we teach is going to be some controversy about a technique or ingredient. Um, and again, for me, um, we don't have a lot of dogma in the class, but we do offer people choice. So we always talk about um, here's how we've chosen to do it here, but if you, you know, if you're uncomfortable with this, here are other, here are other options you can experiment. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, you know, we'll steer them to a website or whatever. But, um, you know, we can't be everything to everyone. And that's the same with the raw milk. Um, it's the same thing, you know, in the, uh, you know, one of the obviously the most popular. I think kind of what brought back 
um, home food preservation was uh, making sweet preserves, you know, jams and jams and marmalades and jellies. And we teach the USDA recommended method for water bath canning, um, you know, uh, and we talk about botulism and all that. And, you know, inevitably someone will say, well, you know, can I make this with less sugar? You know, concerned, they're concerned about their sugar intake. And, you know, really the answer is no, that sugar is a preservative and um, you can source better sugar. You can source sugar, you can source vegan sugar, you can source unrefined sugar, um, you know, evaporated cane, whatever it is, which will have its own flavor. Um, but sugar is a preservative. And if you don't put sugar in it, you, it is not safely, um, it's not a safe food preservation, you know, unless you put it in the refrigerator um, and, you know, and eat it fresh. But if you want a water bath can, you know, for shelf-stable jams, you have to put sugar in. So I feel my feeling is the same thing with nitrates. If you want to make bacon, if you want to cure meat, if you want to eat meat and you want to cure it, um, you have to do something, you know, um, just, just uh, that's the way it is. So, you, you know, you make your own decisions, what you feel is, you know, from the facts that you gather are safest or not. And we hopefully provide you with those choices, and you have to make the decision yourself, which I think is Right. Good. I mean, pretty much you can't make bacon without putting some type of salt, and that's where the nitrates come. And you make a great point that it's about not putting too much, which really is an issue with any type of fermentation. I mean, I've read about how that can be a problem when making your own ferments if you put too much or too little salt in something like a sauerkraut or a pickle. Right, right. And salt actually, I mean, what's interesting about salt is, um, you know, salt is a, is a preservative, but also salt inhibits bacterial growth. So what you're putting salt in is to actually kind of control it. So, it, you know, you, you can't, if you put too much, you'll kill it. Um, and, and if you put too little, um, you know, you'll, you might have too exactly. much bacteria. So uh, the, the salt is, yes, for taste, but it's also, it is, it is a preservative. So it is, it is keeping everything in check. So um, it's the same thing. Yeah, you have to be careful with all of right, that. Right, and that would be the same with bacon. Of course, the thing with bacon is typically you cook it, which that is the one advantage of applying high heat. And certainly you don't want to do it with things such as milk. But with bacon, when it is cooked, I don't think you have as much to worry about, about if there was too little salt in and a lot of bacteria growth because you do cook bacon. So I would think that anything, if there is any problem with the nitrates, a lot of that would be destroyed with the cooking process. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a food scientist. I don't know. But, you know, yeah, I mean, what's so interesting, too, is, you know, we, we, um, we teach all these things. And, you know, most of us who kind of grew up and know something about cooking, you know, hopefully learned something from our parents or aunts or uncles or whatever, um, you know, we know basically, we know basic food things. We know how to store something in the refrigerator. You know, we know we should wrap it in certain things. We know the refrigerator should be at a certain temperature. Like, you know, we know that you, you don't leave certain foods out on your counter. You know, we, we, we know that, you know, if you're using meat, if you're chopping meat, you know, you, you know how to clean your, your, uh, uh, your chopping board, right? I mean, we sort of know all that stuff. Maybe some people don't know that or, or whatever. Um, but if you really take sort of common sense of how you just cook in your house normally, we all know pretty innately we know how to keep ourselves, um, you know, uh, from not getting food poisoning, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, and Mother Nature has some great things that, you know, Mother Nature is like, if something smells a certain way, our human brain recognizes it. And we know, like, oh, I shouldn't eat that or, or I should at least think twice about eating that. So, 
you know, there is some of that. Um, and also, uh, something interesting that can maybe dovetails with this is the um, the cottage food bill, you know, which just, just happened in, in California. And um, that's, that's enabling certain non-potentially hazardous food that you, people can make in their home kitchen without it being inspected. Um, but they have to go through a, um, uh, a sort of safe, um, you know, um, training, of, you know, like, like, like a chef would in a kitchen to learn these basic things. And, and in a way, I think, you know what, all of us should, should, you know, bone up on food safety and, you know, in our own kitchens, how to keep things clean. Um, we all need to know that stuff. It's the same thing about when we're making our own food. It all, it all applies the same way. Oh, right? certainly. We have to know about food safety because when we weren't concerned about food safety, that's what then led to this pasteurization of milk and other products. Right. But also a lot of that, too, you know, I mean, not, not to belittle pasteurization, but I think that's very important. Um, but that was a time, you know, when not everyone had adequate refrigeration in their home. Yeah. Right? It, came out of, it came out of necessity. Things have changed a lot. <laughs> they have. So we've been talking a lot about what right. the Institute of Domestic Technology offers. Tell us a little about some of the other things. First, you have a book you explained a little earlier. So, yeah, I used to be, as a graphic designer, I used to design a number of cookbooks for other chefs. And then I realized I had a lot to say. And so I um, came out with my first cookbook of my own called Pure Vegan. Um, and that was uh, Chronicle Books uh, picked me up. And I, as a graphic designer and photographer, uh, I contributed all my talents um, to, to, uh, to design the book and photograph it with a, with a friend of mine. And um, and felt compelled to sort of bring to elevate um, vegan uh, cuisine up to a status that I think is just starting to happen, where it's not um, substituting fake foods, you know, fake foods in, in a vegan manner, but highlighting foods that are just um, great tasting that happen to be vegan. Um, so I came out with that book, and then I've been um, it, it, throughout that I kind of uh, had a number of recipes. That were uh, we're now teaching in the institute. I realized I was I was writing about um, making ingredients and food preservation as um, you know uh, that happened to be vegan because a lot of them happened to be vegan. So yeah, so we teach um, classes. Um, we teach recipes in our classes from a lot uh, a lot of the recipes in the book. What are some of the recipes in the book that we can learn in your classes? Um, so we uh, I have a, a bread recipe. It's it's based on that sort of very popular uh, no need um, uh, bread recipe that Jim Leahy um, and Mark Bittman from the New York Times did in the New York Times and kind of changed everyone's perception about baking bread. So we do. I do a um, a very simple uh, bread baking recipe in there that's you know no need and it's actually fermented overnight. Um, the yeast is fermented overnight, um, and we teach that from there. We teach, as I mentioned before, the the the, the vegan um, uh, the vegan Shire uh, sauce. Um, I forget what else is in the book, but there's a number of of things where I, I want to show people how to make. One of the recipes in there is like a vinaigrette. And, and I, I started realizing I had so many friends who would come over for dinner and I would make a salad. I'd make my own vinaigrette from scratch, which is, you know, super simple. And, and they would, oh, my God, that's the most amazing salad dressing. What brand is that? <laughs> right? And I said, oh, it's just, you know, it's a simple vinaigrette I made. And they're like, oh, we, we've never learned how to make a vinaigrette. So I, that, that, that was, again, more indication that people have lost the, the, the knowledge of how to make simple ingredients. So um, that process of writing that book sort of really informed uh, a lot how we teach at the, at the Institute. 
Um, and then, you know, the other classes we teach in the Institute that are also really interesting are um, home coffee roasting has become a very popular class. Uh, and I have a, um, a, a young um, uh, uh, coffee uh, uh, company, an owner of a young coffee company called Plow and Gun, um, and he, he, we developed this um, method, which we found on a, an obscure sort of YouTube video, um, of how to roast green uh, coffee beans in a whirly pop um, stovetop popcorn maker. And um, it's become very popular because you can actually control the roast and make any kind of roast you want. And we show you how to access beans, the same beans that sort of, you know, famous um, uh, coffee companies are, you know, are, are sourcing their beans from and roasted yourself. So people, you know, people love, uh, just like the bacon class, they kind of go crazy around um, coffee. Um, we have a cocktail class um, where we teach um, people how to make their own uh, cocktail bitters from um, herbs and, and fresh produce. Uh, we make a, we teach a lot of liqueur making because alcohol is a form of food preservation. <laughs> um, so we we do a lot of um, alcohol preservation, um, focusing on sourcing um, the ingredients from either farmers markets and using organic, um, you know, uh, fruit peels or, or flavorings. Um, but we also teach a lot of the classes too. We also we also sort of go into this area of urban farming where we encourage people to find neighbors or friends who have who are growing things in their yards. They might not even be picking, you know, especially um, in Southern California, you know, fruit trees. People there's so many fruit trees that people either don't pick or only pick the bottom where they can reach but not the top. And um, you know, so it's actually you know, we're actually sort of creating this new breed of of gleaners. Uh, where people are going through people's yards and gleaning unused um, vegetables and fruit, and um, and then you know preserving them and making making these items. So so a number of the classes we do, um, we actually sometimes meet before class at someone someone's home nearby that have fruit trees, and we'll glean their trees for them, bring it all to class, teach the food preservation techniques, you know uh, you know marmalade for people's orange or lemon trees. And then, of course, the, the homeowner gets a big swag bag filled with whatever we nice. made from it. Um, but again, you know, not only again, it, it, it's a gesture, but I think it opens people's eyes. Like, wait a minute, my God, there's all this amazing food in our backyards, in our neighbors' yards um, that is going to waste, and we can actually, you know, one obviously grow it ourselves or connect with our neighbors, um, and then you know, again, get out of that that large agribusiness loop. Uh, depending on what we're told we can buy, and um, and again, you know, I think a lot of it, it's not that I, I'm not, I personally, and the institute personally, is not going to change, you know, all of that over, you know, but it is going to hopefully raise people's consciousness through the exercises of of showing people, um, you know, how they can do this and where they can find, al- you know, alternative ways of finding food. Um, so, you know, we, we, we sort of throw that in there too, because I think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a value added part of our classes. I like that you bring up urban farming because similarly to how people don't know how these processed foods are made and the only way to know if it's truly handcrafted and artisan with minimal processing to make yourself. Similarly, the only way to know if something's truly organic, non-GMO heirloom is to grow it yourself. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that people don't even know what those names are. You know, they don't know what heirloom really means. I think they don't know. Um, so, so the institute also runs um, uh, a farmers market in Altadena, the Altadena Farmers Market, and most people they come up to me every week and they're like. They, they they don't know what certified organic means. They don't know what a certified um, farmer's market is. So, you know, there's a lot of words that go around that people, um, you know, and, and of course, uh, agribusiness and large food companies have latched on to that, and they use those words, um, but with hollow, um, you know, um, hollow promises. You know, they don't, they, they're just, you know, like, like the word natural, right? Oh. Right? There's, there's no... There's actually there's absolutely no regulation over what natural means. So you can put natural on a product that you know, doesn't mean anything. Um, oh yeah, they used the word natural such a joke. Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, luckily, you know, but only with, within I don't know how many years we've had at least in California, you know, um, certified organic. Um, you know, you, you have to at least back up the word organic if you're putting it commercially on a label. Um, but heirloom, I don't think there's a legal, you know, um, uh, definition of what, you know, what heirloom means, right? So, um, hope, hopefully, as we, you know, all these these initiatives and projects that I'm doing, um, you know, I can get people, you know, excited about food and eating and flavor and taste, but also slip in, you know, what all this means to them in a non, you know, dogmatic, non, you know, dictatorial way. Um, and teach people about what those words mean. Right. Heirloom, that's a very new word. It's one that I use a lot. I'm certainly encouraging people to buy more heirloom, but a lot of people don't know what it's meaning. Right. It's not something that you hear a lot. So we're just about out of time, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find the website for the Institute of Domestic Technology and for the Altadena Farmers Market. All right. So um, it's uh, my, my website name is a mouthful. It's instituteofdomestictechnology.com. Uh, and you can go there for all kinds of uh, uh, class information and to register. And the Altadena Farmers Market is every Wednesday, uh, 4 to 8 p.m. at Loma Alta Park in Altadena. And we have a Facebook page, and the Facebook uh, page is Altadena Farmers Market. Oh, Joseph, it's been a pleasure to have you. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Thursday, the Weston A. Price Pasadena Chapter holds its monthly meeting at 6.30 at the Nature Friends Clubhouse in Sierra Madre. The speaker for June is our good friend Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp, or the Kombucha Mama as she's often known. Hannah will give her excellent presentation on what kombucha is and why you should drink kombucha and consume other probiotics. Also, this Saturday at the Hastings Branch of the Pasadena Library at 4 p.m., will be a general meeting for the Label GMOs movement. Find out how to get involved and educate others about why we should label GMOs. For more information, go to the website labelgmos.org. And finally, the excellent grass-fed beef restaurant Burger Lounge has just opened a new location in Brentwood. You can get their burger with grass-fed beef, and for a limited time, they're serving a grass-fed lamb burger. To see their menu and locations, visit their page at burgerlounge.com. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is Gary Collins, founder of New American Nutrition and author of the ebook Primal Power Method. For more information on my guests, visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. 